Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Hudson Institute. Our purpose is to promote American leadership and engagement for a secure, free, and democratic world. I'm Charles Davidson, the executive director of the Kleptocracy Initiative here at Hudson Institute, and I'm going to be the introducer and moderator for today's session, which is all about David Satter and his most recent book, which is an absolute must read. None of us can afford not to read it. And just to set the scene, I'm going to read just a few sentences from David's book that underscore his thesis. The sheer difficulty of accepting the idea that any regime would murder hundreds of its own citizens to terrify the nation and hold on to power. This refusal to believe the unbelievable, however, came at a cost. It crippled Western, and in particular, US policy toward Russia, rendering it naive and ineffectual. From the moment Putin took power, the West was dealing with Russia on the basis of a picture of the country that had no relation to reality. David will introduce himself and speak for about 25 minutes. Then our panelists will respond and discuss the book a bit, followed by questions and answers. Thank you for coming. David? Uh, is my mic working? Yeah. Now, now it's working. Uh, yeah. Okay, good. Well, uh, once again, thank you for coming. And your presence here uh, is much appreciated by me uh, because I take it as recognition of the importance of the question that's raised in the book that I've just completed. The inspiration for the book was my expulsion from Russia in December 2013. It was not just a question of, in some way or the other, getting back at the Russian authorities. I had no desire to do that. But uh, I realized that the act of the Russian authorities in expelling me uh, in December 2013, after tolerating my, pres my presence in Russia, for so many years, and pretending that I didn't bother them, uh, was in fact uh, a critical turning point, and so it turned to, turned out to be. Uh, the Maidan revolt uh, had begun three weeks earlier, and I, on the basis of evidence that we now have, and uh, signs that were obvious at the time. The self-organizing anti-criminal revolution in Ukraine simply created a new situation politically in Russia itself. What had been tolerated could no longer be tolerated. What had allowed in the interest of creating a false facade that could mislead the outside world was now a luxury that the Russian authorities could not afford. When I was expelled, I was told, and a statement was read by a Russian diplomat that the competent organs, and that's a code for the FSB, the successor organization to the KGB, have determined that your presence on the territory of the Russian Federation 
is undesirable and you're banned from entering the country. Of course, hearing those words, I was impressed by the amount of territory where I was suddenly considered <laughs> undesirable. But um, there was no real reason given, but I knew the reason, and I didn't need a reason. And the reason was because I tried during all the years that I've been writing about Russia to convey the true story of the country, including the true story of the country under Yeltsin, something that is not well understood in the West. And most important, the true story of the critical event in post-communist history, which was the bombing of the apartment buildings in Moscow, Buinovsk, and Volgodonsk in 1999. Those bombings were the hinge on which post-communist Russian history turns. They were the culmination of the criminalization of Russia under Yeltsin. They were the foundation of the dictatorship that was established under Putin. They are the identifying marks of a leadership that has absolutely no respect for human life, the lives of its own citizens, or the lives of others. They were also a symbol of how poorly we in the West, in trying to deal with Russia, understand the phenomenon with which uh, we're obliged to deal. Constant, effusive gestures of goodwill on our part have always been culminated by acts of, with, have always been met with acts of aggression on the Russian side. Just recently, a uh, scholar, and I put the word scholar in, in inverted commas, at one of our brother think tanks was explaining that the problem in U.S.-Russian relations was that Obama hates Putin, Putin doesn't like Obama, and this intense uh, personal difference is poisoning relations, uh, as if this was a popularity contest and there were no serious reasons for differences between the two sides. But in fact, there are serious differences. A country which is ruled by a regime which came to power as the result of an act of terror carried out against its own people cannot be an appropriate friend or, uh, <clears throat> a, or, or ally uh, for the United States. It can only become that when the underlying values that motivate the behavior of that country change. Now, uh, I have been trying ever since 1999 to call the attention of the world to the true facts of how power changed hands in Russia and the true story of post-Soviet Russia. I published a book in 2003 in which I made charge, charges that are similar to the ones that are contained in this, my most recent book. Even those people who praised the book were unwilling to engage with the argument that what happened in Russia was the result of a terrorist act carried out by Russia's own government. And the situation uh, did not change as the other people who were making similar accusations to the ones that I was making were murdered one by one. 
First, Sergei Yushankov shot outside of his apartment building. Yuri Shekhachikhin poisoned uh, after returning from a trip to Ryazan. Uh, Anna Politkovskaya murdered uh, as she got out of a hotel, an elevator in her, in her apartment building. Alexander Litvinenko poisoned with a nuclear isotope in London. Through a process of elimination, I was left as practically the only person in the world who was making this accusation publicly. And I did so in testimony before the House Foreign Relations Committee in 2007. Against the background of verifiable facts which I raised and which were raised by the other people who were in fact killed for their efforts, in, in, in the face of the, of the obvious complicity of the authorities in the murders of Alexander Litvinenko and Anna Politkovskaya, a courageous and crusading investigative reporter in Russia, the response of the United States was to institute the reset policy, the purpose of which was to show that the problems in U.S.-Russian relations were uh, the fault of uh, President Bush. Well, what are the indications? Why is it that I am so convinced that this was an act of terror carried out by the Russian government against its own, against its own people? In fact, it's not a conspiracy theory. It is not a wild supposition that's unworthy of attention, but rather something that, a, a, a conclusion that's based on abundant evidence in the United States, circumstantial evidence will convict. Many people are in prison today on the basis of circumstantial evidence. This is more than circumstantial evidence, although I'd like to point out that much of it is circumstantial evidence, which, unlike eyewitness evidence, is impossible to fake. First of all, the FSB, FSB agents were caught putting a bomb in the basement of a building in Riazan uh, on, in, in, middle, in the middle of September, Ryazan is a city southeast of Moscow uh, after four buildings had already been blown up. The reason that a fifth building wasn't blown up was because vigilant neighbors witnessed suspicious persons going down into the basement. They called the police, forced them to go down there, and they found a bomb. A test of the bomb with a gas analyzer showed the presence of hexagon. That's the high explosive that was used to blow up the other four buildings. Uh, the, the FSB arrived at the scene and removed the bomb, but they forgot the detonator. The detonator was photographed and time-stamped. It's, it's a highly professional military detonator. The residents of the building were evacuated and spent the night on the street. And not only were the residents of the building evacuated, but the entire district was evacuated. The entire city was cut off. And no cars could enter or leave Riazan. And as a result of that, and as a result of a, uh, a sketch based on descriptions of the persons who were carrying something down into the basement, the three persons who had planted the bomb were caught. And the uh, KGB 
or I'm sorry, the FSB, the head of the FSB, Nikolai Patrushev, made an announcement on the following day in which he said, well, actually, uh, the bomb was uh, a dummy. It consisted not of high explosives, but of sugar. The detonator was, was, was uh, a fake. And all of this was done in order to test the residents of Ryazan for their vigilance. He then congratulated the residents of Ryazan for, being, for, for passing the test so brilliantly. Of course, I then went to Ryazan to actually talk to people to investigate what happened. And they every, all of the police insisted that, there was, that, that this was no test. And everything about it was extremely realistic. And in fact, the local FSB officers and the local police officers were also convinced that this was a real bomb. And they told the crowds of people on the street that you can consider that today is your second birthday. Or they said, in, there's a Russian expression, you can consider that you were born in a shirt, which is an expression for someone who is really very, very lucky. Um, the, after the uh, building on Guryanova Street was blown up in Moscow, Police arrived at the, uh, at the office of the superintendent of the building, a man named Blumenfeld, and they asked for a sketch of the person who rented the basement in which the explosives were placed. He gave a sketch, uh, and uh, it was widely, it was circulated. And then the next day, it was, sub, it was with, withdrawn from circulation, and a second sketch was was offered of someone who looked completely different. Uh, Blumenfeld later explained that he was pressured to say that the second sketch was the sketch of the person he had seen. But an investigator named uh, Mikhail Tripashkin was, ab uh, was able to find the only copy of the first sketch uh, which was still in existence because one newspaper in Moscow had succeeded in printing the original sketch. And to his astonishment, it was a picture of crime. Short time later, that agent was killed when he was hit by a car in Cyprus. Uh, why would the FSB so anxious, be so anxious to remove the original sketch? And finally, um, Gennady Seleznyov, of the State Duma got up after the bombing, the second Moscow bombing, which took place on Kashirskaya Highway, and announced that I have information uh, that a building has been blown up in Volgodonsk. Problem was uh, that no building had been blown up in Volgodonsk. That was on September 13th. On September 16th, the building was blown up in Volgodonsk. Array, and uh, even a crackpot like uh, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, the, the leader of the so-called and misnamed Liberal Democratic Party, uh, was, was, was astonished and says, how is it that you announced that an apartment is going to, is, was blown up on, on the 13th and it's blown up on the 16th? Uh, and that his microphone was cut off and he was prevented from speaking. Uh, then he... Uh, he offered the explanation that, well, actually, there was a, an explosion in Volgodonsk uh, that uh, 
uh, on the 15th, that in which uh, there were no casualties, but a building was 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 there was an explosion in a building, in, and uh, the suspects were as a result of a gang rivalry of some sort. Well, that raises that raises a number of questions. Why it was important to announce uh, in front of the the entire national parliament that there had been a minor explosion in a provincial city in which no one was injured. But the most important thing that no one could answer is how did, if, if indeed that was what he was talking about, how did he know about it two days in advance? And uh, there is a massive, the, the point is there's a massive informa of, 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 of information. It's not that, that, that the truth about how Putin came to power uh, is not known or cannot be known, it can be known. And it can be known easily. What's at stake is the refusal to face the truth and to, uh, and, to understand, and to make the intellectual effort to understand that an entirely different approach to Russia is necessary than the one that we, we, we have adopted. Uh, certainly, true knowledge of what happened uh, in 1999 would preclude uh, not only a reset policy, but the whole interpretation that was behind it. Similarly, it would preclude, I would hope, some of the stupid remarks being made by the present presidential candidates. The, uh, why did it happen? Uh, I can't go into all of the evidence regarding the uh, apartment bombings, but when you ask your questions, I can, if you have, have them, I can try to respond to at least to a certain extent. Well, contrary to what was thought in this country, uh, the, the uh, Yeltsin period was not uh, marked by the democratic flourishing of Russia, the development of democratic institutions, and the creation of a, of a new a Western-oriented state capable of being a security partner of the United States. The Yeltsin period was uh, uh, marked by the criminalization of the entire country. It was a period during literally the gangster was king and all normal values were, were overturned. Uh, insofar as it wasn't appreciated in the West, it was because so much of American policy at that time was career-driven. And there was, a not, there was not a willingness to uh, accept, assimilate, and evaluate some of the very good reporting that was coming from, from lower level and lower ranking diplomats, who many of whom, in fact, uh, had an accurate view of what was taking place in the country. This is a problem that we face in foreign policy toward Russia and have faced traditionally. Uh, the, the goal was to transform the economy and to place property in private hands and to do it as quickly as possible, to make it impossible for there to be a communist revanche, uh, regardless, by the way, of the will of the people. As it happened, in fact, the, the, the population, as a referendum in 1993 showed, were fully in favor of... of, of liberal economic changes and the introduction of a free market. What they were not in favor of was the massive theft 
that took place in the name of privatization and the complete destruction of the infrastructure of the country and impoverishment of the people, while a small group of well-connected criminals became uh, uh, the new leaders of society. And that had reached the point, the, the conditions under Yeltsin had reached the point in which uh, ordinary Russians were driven to desperation. It's not well understood, but the surplus, the number of surplus deaths during the Yeltsin period was six million. Some Russians refer to this as Galadomor, which is the, 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 the phrase for the Ukrainian famine, Holodomor. Uh, and uh, the, the reason was that the death rate uh, under the conditions that were established in Russia in the 1990s reached levels that are simply not seen in peacetime. Only a country at war has that kind of death rate. And uh, the, the despair of the people was such, uh, the, and the anger was such, that Yeltsin had no chance of being, re, of being reelected, of having uh, an ally or a putative successor being elected without the help of a provocation. And in 1999, the summer of 1999, Moscow was awash in rumors that some type of grandiose provocation was in the works, and it was going to make it possible to establish martial law. And uh, after, the, after the bombings took place, one well-informed, the first, after the first bombings took place, and I, like everyone else, was not sure exactly what's going on here. Could it, well, could it have been a gas leak or what it is? That, 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 but when the one building after another began to be blown up in the middle of the night, and all of this was blamed on Chechens, I realized that there was something suspicious. The Chechens denied they had anything to do with it, but the country was mobilized for a new Chechen war. In fact, the, the, the population up until that time had no desire for a new military engagement in Chechnya. A friend of mine who, who, who uh, connected me to sources of information in the security services themselves, uh, because even in the FSB there were people who were not happy about seeing uh, their own people being blown up under suspicious circumstances. He told me, he said, you know, the Yeltsin family is, 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 is terrified for their survival. They're ready to blow up half of Moscow if their security isn't, uh, isn't guaranteed. And I asked him to put me in touch with the persons who were giving him the information, because uh, including a lot of information I just don't have time to share with you, but I can later. Uh, and it's certainly in the book. Uh, and I met, met with them, uh, obviously under conspiratorial conditions. And uh, the, they explained to me, the whole thing doesn't make sense. There's only one factory that produces hexagon. It's guarded day and night by the FSB. Nobody can transport that much hexagon to so many different locations and coordinate that many uh, explosions uh, without, the, without official participation. Well, where does all this leave us? Uh, we have a, pres a presidential race now. Uh, have one candidate is, show, is, is simply a caricature in terms of his naivete 
and and the ridiculous statements he makes. But the other candidate was the was had access to full uh, uh, intelligence information if she was interested in it, uh, and had the precedence of one murder after another, and nonetheless was an avid advocate of 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 the reset policy, which has proven to be completely unrealistic. So what is it that's wrong with us, and what is it that we need to do in order to, first of all, restrain Russia's behavior, both toward us, because they've now, the, 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 latest, the latest stage in this drama is that Putin, who, have, who emerged from this act of terrorism, is now threatening the world with nuclear weapons. And people can say he's just kidding, but it's a bad joke. And uh, I think that, and there's also the question of the Russian people themselves. The most creative, the most industrious people are being driven, the most uh, uh, liberal-minded are being driven out of the country. Those people who, who remain are, are being zombified by numbing state propaganda for which we have no very effective uh, response and uh, are naive and clueless in dealing with, with, with Russia. So where, where do we begin? And I think that, uh, and, and all, all too often we get lost in the minutia of, of, of daily policy issues, which are, although highly important in and of themselves, are, are going to be effectively resolved without a knowledge and an understanding of the context. And the context is the true history of the country. What happened after the fall of the Soviet Union? Why it happened? And what kind of country are we dealing with? The nature, and, and, and this stems ultimately from a failure to understand the real nature of communism. Communism has, is habitually understood and we, and, uh, as an economic phenomenon. Uh, the government takes over, over ownership of the means of production and uh, uh, destroys the economy and in the process uh, kills a lot of people, maybe. Although in the later stages, the communist regime in the Soviet Union was not killing people, there, although, there was recept although there was mass repression. But the reality is that communism is not an economic phenomenon. It's a moral phenomenon. If you don't understand the moral base of communism, which is, which is a, 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 an explicit rejection of the entire edifice of moral values upon which you know, Western life is, 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 uh, uh, is based, uh, then you're very tempted to think that all you have to do is changing economic structures, when in fact the underlying moral problem continues to exist. And that's what happened in Russia. The economic structures were changed, but they were changed in the absence of the rule of law. And as a result, you got gangsterism. And insofar as gangsterism under conditions of pseudo-democracy cannot sustain itself without provocations, the KGB uh, became the inheritors of power. And insofar as the KGB is inhabited by people who are um, living in a, in a delusionary world uh, 
and for for one thing, and are are dedicated to power and nothing else. Uh, the result is the ex the extinguishing of even those aspects of democratic rule that existed uh, under the previous regime, under the under the under the regime which favored the the the, the oligarchs, kleptocrats, and the gangsters. So. To wrap up, the message of the book and that the message that, that uh, I, I've tried to convey in my writing over the years and will try and continue and I will try to, to do this in the future is that the first priority is to understand the context in which policy decisions are made and policy issues are and this is imp are, are debated. And this is important not just for us, it's important for Russians as well, because they really are crippled by their historical experience and by the dictatorial regime that exists there and the massive mindless propaganda. Once you have the context right, uh, the hundreds of policy issues with which we are confronted in our dealings with Russia and with the former Soviet Union Will have uh, an will be will be clarified, and we'll be able to act with greater wisdom, not only uh, in our own interests, but uh, in the interests of the Russian people as well. Well, the I want to stick to the time frame that I have. But I will be glad afterwards to answer any questions. And of course, there is more to say about it. Thank you very much. All right. Oh, starts here? Sit in the middle. All right, OK. All right, gentlemen, well, it's a great pleasure to introduce this panel um, because uh, most of them are old friends. And then one of them's a new friend, Bob. Armstrong here. I think I'll introduce Amsterdam. Uh, Amsterdam. Bob Amsterdam. I always get that wrong. I'll get it eventually. <coughs> anyway, just Robert, think of Holland. I know. I know. I know. I'll, I'll get it eventually. But anyway, Bob is an international lawyer who has had an absolutely unique and fascinating career, uh, taking on very, very interesting, high-profile cases. And I urge you all to look up Robert Amsterdam and to read a little bit about his work and career. I, I guarantee you, you will not be bored. Uh, to uh, Bob's right is our uh, president of the National Endowment for Democracy, Carl Gershman, who I guess has been president of it since soon after his birth. Um, it's been a long time. He was the founding president, if I, if I uh, got it correctly. Is that, is that uh, right, Carl? And, uh, and then uh, David Satter doesn't require further introduction. And Kevin Close, to my left, was with the Washington Post for many years. Uh, and he was the Moscow correspondent for the Washington Post. He was president of Radio uh, Free Europe, Radio Liberty, twice. He was president of NPR also. And he is currently a professor of journalism at the Maryland School of Journalism. So, uh, 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 Bob, Carl, and Kevin are going to say a few words each for a few minutes, and then we will have maybe a little bit of a discussion amongst ourselves, and we will open it up to you as soon as we, uh, as soon as we can. 
so, David, who shall we start with amongst us? Oh, that's such a weighty decision. Why don't we start with Bob Amsterdam, because he's on the left there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you all. And, and David, thank you for another heroic book. I think the book is uh, a phenomenon in that it, in, in a very few pages, uh, sets out the fundamental nature of the regime that we are dealing with. And there are two aspects I'm going to address. One is the recklessness of Vladimir Putin. I think uh, from the first moment the Kursk sank till now, one of the things about the regime that always floors me is the recklessness with which it endangers the lives of citizens. And I think the book demonstrates that in respect to not only the apartment bombings, but Nordost, Beslan, and some of these other horrific events that have punctuated recent Russian history. And it's, it's well beyond an issue just of the rule of law. It's really an issue that we need to come forward with, which is that those in charge of Russia today have really, in a way, declared war on their own citizens. It's a, it's a very unique, it's, it's a very cynical uh, level that, that the, the present uh, Russian kleptocracy has reached. And it's very dangerous for all of us. I was reading an article this morning in Foreign Affairs where I think Mr. Treisman was talking about the occupation of Crimea, uh, not as some well-thought-out policy, but as, as a, another moment of, of kind of reckless opportunism. And at a moment when America is historically at its lowest point in terms of Russia, when we have a president who is completely discounted by the leaders of Russia and China, we're at a, a very dangerous moment uh, and there's one other thing to look at in terms of Russia, which I look at as a lawyer, which is that the use of law in Russia as a mobilization technique needs to really be understood because in our own war on terror in the West, we are in a different level, but we're, we're, we're starting to come at the same approach in a way to this need this constant need for a state of emergency, a state of exception. And that state of exception we must always walk away from because no true democracy can function when its citizenry is constantly being directed against another threat, when its citizenry are constantly being taught to be victims whether it is because a color is going to change here in Washington on the degree of threat we face, or whether it's in Russia and you're being told that NATO is going to invade, this constant move by our leaders in both countries to move us towards emergency is dangerous. And this book is so incredibly powerful and important because it is not just an object lesson of what's going on in Russia. It's a guide to the dangers that follow us down the rabbit hole of the war on terror and the idea of exceptionalism. And a presidential candidate who starts talking about banning people because of their religious beliefs. 
we are allowing ourselves in America today to be intoxicated and zombified ourselves. So watching our friends and our brothers and sisters in Russia and what's happened to them is a, an important lesson that goes well beyond their borders. And, and David, again, thank you for a, a really worthwhile and heroic book. I want to share those uh, congratulations and then also uh, you know, say that what impresses me, David, about what you're doing is your focus on this particular um, phenomenon, this event that took place, uh, or the series of events that took place in 1999. Um, and you're not going to let that go. And I think that's uh, very good. You know, it, it has actually never been refuted. I mean, what David is writing has never been refuted. Uh, try it out. Um, and they, you know, say what happens, and then they say that they mentioned three people who I Googled them. They're totally obscure people. They criticize it. They don't say what the criticism was. They don't say what the other um, explanations were for what happened. It's just never been refuted. And I think David makes the case that what happened was real. And then you have to then follow that up. What are the implications of thinking about uh, this regime that still exists in Russia today after 17 years, the regime of Vladimir Putin, who, is ex who has, you know, as the economist once said, you know, rode a tank over international, the international order when he invaded and annexed uh, Crimea and now, um, and now has, is in invading and still carrying on the war in eastern Ukraine, and then you have Syria and so forth. And these are very, very significant things, and yet we're dealing with him as if he's sort of a normal, a normal leader. Um, and so this, this is something that has very, very deep implications. And um, I hope that what David is doing will lead to um, further investigative articles about this, um, PhD theses. Um, I could see, you know, I could see congressional hearings. I talked to one congressman recently who was telling me he had met with some uh, Duma people from Russia, and you know, he thought they, you know, they had a chip on their shoulder. And I asked him, "Well, do you know anything about the apartment bombings?" And he he said he didn't. This was a really knowledgeable con congressman about this. And uh, any event, he's gotten interested in it. And I think more people should be interested in it because it's not something that is ancient history. Because we're still dealing with the consequences of that today. And as David was talking before, he sort of reminded me of Bill Browder, who you know got totally focused uh, after the murder of uh, Magnitsky in prison, who was working for him, and the end result was the Magnitsky Bill. And now we have a global Magnitsky Act, which just passed the House Foreign Affairs Committee this week. And I hope it will, you know, become law. Um, and this terrifies a lot of the, the, the Russian, the, the people who have committed these acts. And I think we should be thinking hard about moral equivalent of the Magnitsky Act. You know, if, I mean, we, you don't want to get into policy too much, but if all of what you're saying is true, we should think of some way uh, to respond to this in a meaningful way that would advance um, justice um, in Russia. Because in a way, you're fighting for these 293 people in the same way, for justice, in the same way that uh, Browder is fighting for justice for Magnitsky. Now, the book, does much more than uh, just talk about the apartment bombings. That's the first chapter. 
Um, but you know, the, uh, the, the chapters after that are also pretty hair-raising and frightening. Uh, and David, you know, you don't have as much evidence on Nordost and Beslan as you have on the apartment bombings, but David believes, and he gives strong circumstantial evidence that these horrendous things that happened, the, uh, the attack on, you know, the terrorist, the so-called terrorist attacks on the theater and then the Beslan school, and the, um, the, uh, then the, the attack on the, the terrorists by the Chechens, by the Russian forces, where they, uh, you know, they wouldn't negotiate. They had no regard for the lives of the hostages. I mean, the, the, what he tells in the book is an absolute horror on both counts. Uh, and it, these things have not been investigated. And Putin was able to use these things, uh, again, like the, uh, the apartment bombings, to uh, alarm the uh, Russian people and build and, and build his power. And so that is another important aspect of this book. And then I think, you know, in a way, the most revelatory chapter for me was the chapter about Yeltsin. Because Yeltsin, you know, st still retains a good reputation in this country. He's the guy that o oversaw the, uh, the, the collapse of the uh, Russian, the Soviet empire, um, and was fated in this town for a very, very long time, and seen as a good Democrat. But the story that David tells about the, uh, the destruction of the, uh, the attack upon and the destruction of the parliament, and then the adoption of a constitution soon after in 1993 uh, that gave all the power to the presidency, um, tells a totally different story about Yeltsin, who really set the stage for Putin. And then I think, as David is saying, that the apartment bombings and Putin's coming to power in 1999 had a lot to do with Yeltsin, who you know wanted to get immunity from prosecution for everything that happened before. The first act, as David points out in the book of Putin when he became the acting president, uh, was indeed to uh, uh, give uh, Yeltsin and his family uh, immunity from, uh, from prosecution. So it really tells a, a sordid story, a really, and a broader story than that. And then, you know, I think maybe one last point about, you know, what David has done in the book. I think, you know, what is, and you, and you alluded to this in your comments before about communism not being an economic system, but, you know, a, uh, a moral phenomenon. Um, and we don't really understand that, and we don't understand the consequences of that. Um, that and David has sort of focused more than anyone um, on the failure of uh, the Russian government and people after the fall of communism to deal with the past, as Sakharov, you know, called for. Uh, they never did that, quite the contrary, and then they've built now what is an utterly criminal state, and they remain morally degraded, and the state remains morally degraded, as, as he's pointing out. And that is something, you know, that um, uh, obviously still has profound consequences today, and the most horrendous things happen, you know, where people like Anna Polakovskaya and Natasha Estimirova and Boris Nemtsov, these are the, some of the greatest people in the world, are murdered because they try to stand uh, up against this. Two final points. We should not forget that there are people in Russia. You said, David, that they forced out a lot of the liberals and the creative people and the people left are zombified. There are people left in Russia who are fighting, who are risking their lives, and there are a lot of them. Um, and they are, you know, they're, they're, 
they hope that a change will come. And Putin is nervous. You know, they have elections um, in, in, on September the 18th. They've just passed a whole s uh, slew of laws uh, prohibiting mon monitors. Putin has just uh, created a 400,000 uh, uh, personnel uh, praetorian guard around himself, which is run by his personal bodyguard, uh, Viktor Zolotov. Um, and he's nervous. He's terrified. I heard the, the U.S. ambassador speaking at a meeting recently where he said that Putin uh, obsessively watches videos of um, uh, Gaddafi's fall and, 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 and murder. Uh, he's terrified of this. This is not a secure leader, even though, you know, and he's not behaving as if he has 89% support. And we, rem we have to remember that there are people in Russia that believe that Russia can have a better alternative. It will be extremely difficult, given all the moral degradation, the criminality that you've talked about. Um, but there are people there who are conducting that fight, and they need help, and they need recognition, and they need support. Maybe a last point is just that um, one of these people is uh, somebody by the name of Ilya Yashin, who is uh, the closest associate of, of Boris Nemtsov. And recently, he was here in Washington to release this report called The Threat to National Security. And it's about Ramzan Kadyrov, who is now the Chechen leader who is allied with Putin. He's got 30,000 uh, armed people under his control, at least 30,000. Even people in the FSB are worried about this guy. In other words, I think the regime is even splitting over this, and Putin has really just asked him to stay, to stay in power. And he's, the basic point of this is that Kadyrov is the threat to Russian national security today. They have created, Putin has created, a monster. And that monster, which is Kadyrov and everything he represents, is a direct product of the, of the apartment bombings in 1999 of this regime. Um, and it's even terrifying now the Russian elite. They've created a monster, and they're terrified of this themselves. And it's, it obviously is not just limited to Russia. It, uh, this is something that affects all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, David and I have a long history of, uh, of uh, journalism, both in the United States. Uh, uh, we met first at the Washington Post newsroom in the late 1960s. And um, about a decade later, we bumped into each other by complete accident uh, on Gorky Street in Moscow, where he was reporting for the Financial Times, and I was there for the Washington Post after Bradley uh, exiled me from the newsroom, <laughs> just on L Street. And um, we had, a, I just want to talk about the nature of his reporting and his, uh, and his contacts. Uh, there was a large U.S. press corps in Moscow in the 1970s and 80s, and actually until quite recently, until the economic turmoil and storm that has, uh, that has overcome a lot of the major news organizations in the, in the country. Even papers in small cities like Baltimore had their own Moscow correspondent in Mos in, in, uh, for their own readerships. Uh, all this kind of diversity has, uh, has pretty much been, uh, been, uh, been removed. It's been replaced by social media practitioners of every kind, but that's another story. I want to talk about, about David's way of reporting. First of all, he has extraordinary Russian. And he also had dedicated himself, as I know him, to getting below the surface 
to learning what the reality is below the calm, apparent, uh, apparently calm exterior or the repressed exterior of a, of a cauldron of people who have been held without, without freedom to exercise their own, their own views about their politics, their points of view, often their morality, and their contact with the world outside. It's a long sequential history that is only, only very recently, and especially after Perestroika and after the, after the, uh, the demise of the Soviet Union, people actually started to have freedom to travel and also freedom to get information which had previously been censored from their from their capacity to have access to. David's contacts in those years were extraordinary. Together, we traveled to the then closed city, close to foreigners of Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. We spent time with a with this free trade union activists in the Soviet Union who were seeking simply a fair deal for the working classes in in the in the workers' paradise. We knew just by comparing what had happened to these leaders, who had been one by one uh, identified, followed, watched, then arrested and then incarcerated in special hospitals, psychiatric hospitals for the criminally insane, many of them treated with, uh, with uh, awful uh, drugs to distort, their, distort both their psyches and also torture their bodies before they were released after these kinds of tortures. David and I spent time with these people. He knew contacts that almost nobody else in the Western journalism community knew. And he has assiduously kept his contacts open and his authenticity to people who care about, about f freedom of thinking and actual freedom of speech and of information. They know him. He's part of an extraordinary network of people who have always been in place, but who, when they, when they have returned to Russia and to the territory of the former Soviet Union, have found these, these contacts waiting for them so they can convey reality back out to us in the West for the purposes of knowing in the hope that if great governments, caring governments in the Western democracies care about what's happening in Russia, about the denial of due process, about the true denial of freedom of speech, and so forth, that they will have a, a resolve to help to change that, change that situation in Russia in the context of policy, in the context of contacts, and so forth. It took the invasion of, of uh, the, the seizure of Crimea and the invasion of, of eastern Ukraine to get to a place where true sanctions were starting to come into place. It's one thing which we know that the, that the Putin government absolutely hates, despises, and fears because it's having an effect on their ability to do what they have done so, so covertly, to do it openly with open exchange of favorable trade agreements and so forth and so on, access to Western financial markets, et cetera very important for them in the particularly uh, very parlous situation they're in now with the Russian economy because of, the, because of the drop in oil prices. They will come back in time, but the sequence of ups and downs don't augur well for a, for a regime which is almost Shakespearean in the way, A, it has come to, it has come to power, and in the, in the paranoia that surrounds it. You can see the paranoia expressed in such things as it predates, of course, Putin. It's a long history in the Russian leaderships and in the Soviet leaderships. Paranoia about the West, paranoia about the capitalist realities, paranoia about liberalism and freedom of speech and freedom of expression. That goes way, way back. 
But the, underneath that have been sinister, completely sinister distortions of the truth and suppressions of the truth. You can think about the, the White Sea Canal. Those of us who know any parts of the history of the Soviet period know that it connects directly to what is happening today in Russia in a different fashion. You can look at it uh, more recently in the, in, the, in the Chernobyl meltdown, the worst nuclear catastrophe, civilian nuclear, nuclear catastrophe in the, in the history of atomic power. It took them days before they actually said what it was. Uh, I actually have a, one, of my, one of my children actually coming out of Moscow was on a plane that I think we think flew through the, through the, out, the, the outcasts of the, of the uh, contaminated materials in the air from, from Chernobyl, which no, at that point, there were no warnings to anybody about what was in that cloud of debris that was rising uh, into the atmosphere. That's just one example of it. When the Kursk submarine went down, and David talks about it in his extraordinary book, there were days went by when there were people still alive in the sunken submarine, desperately hoping they would be rescued, and the delays that occurred because of, A, paranoia, but also pride and fury at what had happened, and having to, uh, after having to go through the whole sequence of a, of a sham well, we think maybe the Americans did it because they were close at hand. Maybe it was something from the United Kingdom, which has, has had submarines in our, in our backyard for years, and they share things, and it's a NATO, so forth and so on. We've seen the same reappearance of these kinds of, of uh, fakeries about such things as the downing of the airliner over Ukraine. Who did that? There have been five or six or seven or eight different, maybe ten different versions of who they think actually brought down the airliner. Nothing to do with the, with the buke that probably was taken there. If you go on bellingcat.uk, you can see that they tracked the, they tracked the entire uh, movement of that, of that mobile anti-aircraft battery, uh, probably from, uh, uh, I think it was actually from, it was, I think they traced it from Kursk, where the great tank battle was in World War II, all the way down into southeastern Ukraine. Does any of that have, have to do with how they think about their relationships with everybody else? That is to say, all the great governments around them with whom they wish to have normal relations. And the answer is no. It's like this. We can do as we do, and we'll keep doing it because you're not paying attention. The power of David's book in the extraordinary reporting he has done is to give us, as best anyone could do, a kind of reappearance of this kind of reality, as though it were, it had been taken not by accident, but people who were actually there. He has taken the sequence of discoveries of knowledge and of facts and brought them together in a new way, in a coherent, sequential presentation that takes us all the way back to the apartment bombings in Moscow in 1999 and traces the moral road and the immoral road that takes us out to where we are today. So it's a toxin in the darkness, in the confusion that we have in our own country about what to do about this kind of a regime. I think it's enormously powerful. It's a wonderfully readable book. And it moves with drama and reality and incessant sticking to the facts, sticking to the known suppositions. We can't know everything that happened in so remote a time and in so remote and closed a place, in a place that is repressed and that people 
are, they know that they're under possible interdiction if they speak the truth of what they know. Part of David's life has been to find those people and to bring them forward with his, as you see, a kind of geniality, an openness, and a kind of commitment to human contact in a, real, in, a, in a level not only of reality of hard facts, but also in a reality of just we're in this together. His approachability and his ability to, to get people to open up to him and to tell them things they don't tell others seems to me to be extraordinary. It's a great talent he has. It's part of his, it's part of his history. It's part of his professionalism. And it's part of the reason why, why I think it's, uh, it, it's a pleasure and an honor to be on this, on this, uh, uh, in this platform, uh, in this roundtable with you all and with him. And uh, I can urge you, having read the book, I said to a, a group the other day, it's a hell of a read. And, and uh, oh, I wish there were copies here to buy, but I want you to go out. It's a wonderful book. It's a quick read. You can take it to the beach with you. In the, but the point is, is to remember what it's about. It takes us on the moral journey back to a very, very dark place. And what he's telling us is there's no moral difference today than there was when those attacks on the population, a small, defenseless, unknowing, innocent group of people when they went forward with deliberation, with cruelty, with prejudgment, and knowing that a cover-up would occur, they thought. David Satter, thank you very much. Well, before we uh, uh, open up our conversation with you all, I, I would like to underscore this uh, issue of David's courage, because uh, as, as you will discover if you read the book, uh, most the other people who uh, early on uh, tried to um, expose the reality of these apartment bombings are all dead, or virtually all dead. Uh, and David uh, just kept on and, uh, and fearlessly uh, plowed Plowed on with us. He never, uh, he never uh, gave up. He never changed his tune. He was expelled from uh, Russia, as we know, and he's still here with us, and he's still relaxed and genial, which is the most amazing thing. And maybe he'll explain that to us at some point. Uh, any other comments, David, from you before we open it up to our uh, our audience here? No, I think it would be great if people would just ask uh, whatever questions they have. Uh, Great. And we have we should have two microphones somewhere. Let's see. Where do we have microphones? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, all right. Why don't we start all the way in back, the back row there? <clears throat> Thank you and, very uh, much. Please identify yes. yourself I'm and Carmine uh, name and affiliation, please, as usual. And the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, it's very interesting. Thank you so much to, for the book and for all the comments. Uh, with regard to the implications of this for our past and uh, going future foreign policy. With regard to NATO and the um, past expansion of NATO eastwards without necessarily the uh, military or political investment to make the defense of those countries as credible as the core NATO countries, do you think that was a wise uh, uh, movement in respect to what's happened subsequently? Shall I? Uh I think that um, look at what happened to Ukraine, which was outside of NATO. Uh, it's, uh, 
it's clear that the countries, that, particularly the Baltic countries, would have been subjected to uh, excruciating pressure. Uh, they, they are under pressure under any circumstances. But the, the expansion of the NATO alliance eastward stabilized an entire swath of territory which could have been subject to Russian subversion and destabilization. Uh, the idea that Russia was provoked by that uh, uh, eastward expansion is a fairy tale. That's something that the Russians would like people to believe. But uh, in reality, uh, all it did was create limit, limits on Russian behavior, which unfortunately didn't apply in the cases of those countries like Ukraine and Georgia, which were left out. I'd like to add, if I could, when we moved Radio for Europe from Munich, where it had been uh, in, for many, many years, from the, from the late 1940s right up into the 1990s, uh, I received a letter from the then German uh, foreign minister uh, of the Germany. At that point, was, uh, had been, it was in the process of reunifying, uh, and the, the, uh, the uh, capital had moved from Bonn to Berlin and so forth. We're talking about the mid-1990s. And he wrote me a letter that said, uh, you know, they're very, very unhappy that, that this great organization was moving from Munich, but that it was in the national security interests of the, of the Federal Republic of Germany for there to be nations to the east abiding under the rule of law in what they did and how they acted and that that was in their national interest, and therefore he was supporting the fact that the radios were moving east. That's just that version. I want to say a couple of things about the, about the relationship. The, the issue of the, of the periphery around the former Soviet Union is enormously important to those countries which are in the block, in the, what I consider to be the transition zone from the Baltics down to the Balkans, where they are struggling to secure they're democratic forms of government. These are new things for people. We're very lucky in this country. We've had this for a long time. We've had many variations. And we may have some very unexpected variations in how we govern ourselves coming forward. I don't know that. But I do know that we have a long history. We have a, a particular defense of civil liberties of the individual. That's part of who we're at. We can see it happening every day in this country where we're challenging the repressions as we learn about them. And legislation occurs reforms occur, behaviors change. It's never, it's never consistently that thing. It's always under stress, and we know all that. In the East, this kind of struggle to identify and preserve civil liberties, once they have been guaranteed under the new rules of these new democracies, self-inventing themselves for a second and third time sometimes, are very important to them. If I said to a group here a year ago, is anyone, does anyone in this room think that if Ukraine had been in NATO, that they would have, that they would have marched into Crimea and then into, and there would be another struggle over it? No, wouldn't have happened. So the answer is yes. They could have, they should have, they would have. It didn't happen. In 13, in the summer, I just finished it off. In the summer of 13, there was a big meeting up in Vilnius. You know the, you know the, gr you know the, the group that came together. And in that, just before that meeting occurred and just after it, senior emissaries from Moscow were sent to Azerbaijan, to Armenia, to Georgia, 
to turn around and tell them, we're not going, you're not going further west in this EU entry sequence you're in. That's what they told them. And every one of them stopped, and that's part of what happened that led to the upheaval in Ukraine. So the answer is, can a regime like the Putin regime, with its inheritance from a dark past and its reality in a dark, in a dark present, can it allow to have a large Slavic brotherhood country with free elections, with an independent court system, with a transparent financial system that's part of the, such as it is, the best it can be so far, and maybe it'll get better after a lot of the investigations about dark money and the rest of it. Maybe we can clean up a lot of this stuff. But can they afford to have that kind of consistency right on their border and see it take off intellectually, creatively, because that is the that is the lifeblood of the future, to have freedom of speech, creativity, movement, and so forth. Can they, and sitting there where they're sitting, in the repression they live in, in the, thieve, the theft and the violence they live in, state-sanctioned, can they have that on their border? That's what Ukraine is all about. Anybody else want to comment on NATO, on this issue? Yeah. I, I think the, the, the issue for me isn't just NATO. It's been our hesitancy in how we dealt with Georgia and Ukraine and what George W. Bush did in 2008 with Georgia. One of the things about Mr. Putin, this recklessness I spoke about, was also the, the predictive nature. Uh, a predator constantly is stalking his prey. And when the United States, under George Bush, let Putin engage in Georgia the way he did, it was a clear signal and this, this clear signal that, that the West was rolling back is, has been, a, it's been the background music over the last number of years. And that's what resulted in Crimea, and that's what's resulted in what we're dealing with, not only in Ukraine, but now in, in Syria. And uh, you have to be extraordinarily careful about accepting the Russian narrative of either expansion or victimization, because... The key to, in my view, understanding Russia is understanding that all of these foreign policy initiatives uh, become more and more reckless uh, because the velocity increases in direct proportion to the insecurity of the leadership. We're in a terribly dangerous moment because Vladimir Putin's looking at Gaddafi's picture. And the fact that he believes Mr. Obama is incapable of, rest of restraining him and or that has no stomach to do any of that. Uh, it, it's, it puts us at a very dangerous time. Well, I just want to maybe um, follow up on something uh, that Kevin was saying, uh, which is really very, very important about Ukraine. Um, it's, it's very central. I mean, Ukraine wanted not to become part of NATO. It wanted to become part of the European Union. And, and the, the whole issue before the Euromaidan uprising was whether or not Ukraine would sign the association agreement with the European Union. Yanukovych originally said he would, uh, which surprised a lot of people. And then Putin did intervene. By the way, Georgia never backed off. Uh, Georgia wants to be part of uh, uh, Europe, and, and it, I hope it will eventually become. But uh, Putin intervened. Yanukovych backed off. That led to the first protests, and before you knew it, you had this massive uprising um, in, in, uh, in Ukraine, the Euromaidan. And this was 
a freedom movement. This was a freedom movement. They were affirming not only the values of freedom, but values of individual responsibility. At NED uh, next month, if anybody wants an invitation, let me know. Svetlana Alexievich, um, all of her books, and she wrote about Chernobyl as well, uh, interviews with people who suffered through this. It's all trying to tell you know, the reality of so, homo sovieticus, this, this uh, uh, the, the, it's what resulted from communism, this, this mentality which was made, poss made possible what David is talking about, a mentality that, is, that doesn't have any moral foundation, uh, that, is, that is morally degraded. And how do you overcome that? They were overcoming that in the Euromaidan. It was a freedom movement. They succeeded in getting rid of Yanukovych. As a result of that, you know, Putin uh, in, invaded and annexed Crimea. But what did the West do? I mean, even today, even today, if you read the Atlantic interview uh, on the Obama doctrine, Ukraine is accepted by the administration as part of the Russian sphere of influence. And therefore, we're not going to really do anything. And if you, you know, if you want to, I think that, you know, if, if, if you want your equivalent of the Magnitsky Act, it would be a coherent policy for Ukraine. <laughs> because if there is any way to ultimately have freedom and democracy in Russia, it is for Ukraine to become a successful, independent, democratic country. If it does, if it does, Putinism is dead. By Putinism, I mean a particular ideology of Russian imperialism. It is dead. And what you can get at that point is a normal Russian nationalism, which is worried about the problems of Russia. Um, and that is the only way it's the only way it's going to come about is first that Ukraine has to succeed. And we as a country are at a moment of immense confusion today, immense confusion, where nobody seems to even get this and nobody seems to have any feeling of solidarity with the people who were in the Maidan in um, in Ukraine in 2013 and 2014. And we have to ask ourselves a lot of questions, and I think we have to begin still, it's not too late, uh, to, address, uh, to address this issue. I just want to add just briefly just one, just one other comment, because I was, uh, I was back in Prague in 13, all, all 13, part of 14, back at Radio for Europe. What I know from that and what I know from, from, from my colleagues there and in the, and in the transition zone or the, or the transformational zone is there's an immense amount of Russian money Russian influence, R Russian conniving, and so forth going on in all those countries to weaken liberal democracy, to weaken the multi-party parliamentary system and debase it. You can see it most egregiously in places like Hungary. But it's not only confined to Hungary. It's happening all across that region. And that is part of what, the, what this sort of astonishing propaganda output is by the coming out of directed and, and coherent in its own way from Moscow. The, a gentleman in the uh, back standing up, please. Bart Markoy, oh, you've got. Oh, thank you. Bart Markoy's Richard Richards Institute. And this is exactly what I wanted to ask about is what's happening in Prague and the other V4 countries building on Carmine's uh, question. We see it happening all over Eastern Europe, this erosion and this undermining. It's like watching old Soviet active measures, and now they call it hybrid warfare. Yes. Do you know anybody who's working on that, who's writing about it, who's researching it? It's, it's very real, and you're seeing little mini Putins springing up 
in the Czech Republic, in Hungary, and elsewhere. Thank you. I can just tell you that uh, that Radio for Europe is tracking it, uh, and there there are uh, there there if you look on on the website rfrl.org, you'll see you'll see some parts of this. But internally, I think uh, there's a lot of reporting going on in these countries. But Radio for Europe doesn't do those languages anymore. We're not in Eastern. We're not in the trans, in the transformational zone anymore, almost completely, except in the Balkans. Well, there are a lot of people who are following it. I mean, Ann Applebaum has written a number of articles about it in the uh, Washington Post, and uh, recently a piece on the uh, uh, Russian information offensive, which she did with Edward Lucas. Both of them are associated with an organization called the Center for European Policy Analysis, CEPA, which has done a lot of work on this. Our, our International Republican Institute, which is part of the NED family, uh, has a beacon project, which is bringing people together to focus on exactly the problem that you're talking about. There's a European Endowment for Democracy, uh, which um, is working on this issue very, very actively. There are a lot of people working on this, but I think the challenge is going to be to bring them together more closely and to establish a much stronger coalition to push back against the Russians. But you're right. Some t very dangerous and troubling developments are taking place, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland today. And the, the, the issue is that it's a lot of these groups are being funded by Putin. Putin's very aggressively involved in the whole immigration, the, the migration crisis into Europe. Uh, this hybrid warfare is something in Europe that we're seeing every day. And it's, it's astounding the impact he's had uh, also in France with Le Pen. I mean, he's, he's actually uh, outwardly funding this as a point of leverage. Eric Kasparov calls it the weaponization of refugees. Yeah. We have another question in the sec uh, second row here, please. Um, Maria Jutrewska, uh, the Institute of World Politics. Uh, I wanted to ask a question regarding the nuclear aspect of this conflict, namely the moment the USSR collapsed, the Ukraine had nuclear weapons. It disarmed itself in exchange for the guarantee of security from NATO. The moment it was attacked and the Crimea was taken away from it, there was no uh, radical response from the West. What do you think um, is the message that the Western powers are sending to all the countries that are somehow endangered and see the security guarantee in possessing the nuclear weapons? Are they going to be willing to disarm themselves if there is no security guarantee for them? I can, uh, I'll say something very, very, very brief. Of course, it undermines uh, any any Western guarantee, and uh, similarly, um, it's not the only situation of, of if we're looking just at the nuclear aspect. Uh, it's also significant that Libya gave up uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, before uh, Gaddafi was overthrown. And uh, the, um, the, the, but the, the, the real issue, I think, in, in terms of Russia and, and Ukraine, I don't think that this was a situation in which even if Ukraine had had nuclear weapons, that uh, uh, the nuclear weapons would have played a very, you know, were, were 
they're not designed to operate in that context very well. The important thing is is to make it possible for the Ukrainians uh, to defend themselves, and for that they need they, they need modern weapons. They're they're perfectly capable of fighting, and the the uh, the uh, particularly in eastern Ukraine, the 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 persons who've been recruited. Uh, are oftentimes the dregs of society, and uh, they're they're super armed right now. But but uh, Ukraine can do well against them with the, with the proper defensive weapons. There is a conflict, and there is no help, even though they gave what they had the most power for. So yeah, of course, of. Of course, I mean, it's of course it under it undermines any future guarantee. It's disgraceful, and North Korea watched it very carefully. I can assure you. Yeah. Yeah. Ina Dubinsky, the Broadcasting Board of Governors. Charles, thank you for this wonderful discussion, and uh, we probably need to thank the Kremlin for expelling David because <laughs> we have him in one piece here. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, my question. Uh, refers to the time uh, described, as David said in his book, uh, basically saying that Yeltsin's time was not that good at all, and it was naivete and euphoric, maybe, attitude of the U.S. government um, towards uh, Yeltsin's administration, which coincided, actually, with deconstruction of the United States Information Agency which was in charge of uh, all information uh, going out to the former Soviet bloc at that time. Do you think it is time to revive the United States Information Agency? Thank you. I, as a, I have an institutional interest in that. Uh, <laughs> as a former deputy director uh, for international broadcasting, in the last uh, sequence of USIA before it was it was um, it was uh, abolished and and uh, consolidated into the State Department under the uh, public diplomacy under Secretariat. Uh, I thought USI did extraordinary work. Uh, when the Balkans crisis erupted, the people who knew the most about what was going on there were the USI officers from that region and and the, and the diplomatic staffs. And um, that doesn't mean it isn't the same isn't true today. But it was just extraordinary how much they knew at that time, uh, and I would say that uh, you know the, the the dissolution of a separate agency, along with ACTA, Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, and so forth, which was an adamant, it was a trade-off with Jesse Helms sitting on those demands and sitting on a a major release of funds that the U.S. was U.S. owed to the United Nations. That's what the trade-off was, and it didn't happen until the, the money was not released until until that trade-off occurred, and USIA was was uh, was eliminated for that reason in the same way ACTA was. I don't know whether people think that's good, bad, or indifferent. I could just say that USIA had a coherent reality. It was very important on its own, and uh, and it had enough independence and separation from the, diploma, the diplomatic corps that it could pursue its own, its own issues in a way that was effective and supportive of the diplomatic sequence. So uh, I don't say that doesn't happen now. It's just a lot of, it's, it's different, is what I would say. In this, 
Senator, back there, please. Jackie Mahler, NDI. Um, you mentioned that the apartment bombings were used as rhetoric to start the Second Chechen War. Would you also say that the uh, Moscow theater siege was used as rhetoric to continue that fighting? And if that's not the reason why you think that happened and why it was um, staged, why did they keep putting the Chechens at the front of all these? There was, there was at the time of the Moscow theater siege, there was a, first of all, Russian public opinion had shifted against, after three years of fighting, uh, had shifted against uh, the war in Chechnya, the second Chechen war. And there, now, there was strong support in Russia, at least according to public opinion polls, for bringing the war to a negotiated end. At the same time, there were major international efforts uh, some of them connected with Big Berzinski to find and the Committee for Peace in Chechnya to bring a negotiated end to the conflict. Uh, it was also a, at a time when Russia was engaging in massive security sweeps in, in, in Chechnya uh, that led ultimately to thousands of people just being disappeared. Uh, after the uh, in the aftermath of the Nordost theater siege and the deaths of hundreds of, of hostages as a result of the gas, including Americans, uh, all talk of, of a negotiated settlement came to an end. And uh, uh, the, actually the same thing happened in the case of Beslan because attempting for, for uh, renewed hostilities uh, the Russians at the same time were anxious to install uh, <clears throat> the father of Ramzan Kadyrov as a Russian puppet in Chechnya, and each si each side was was anxious to finish off. You know, well, in on the one hand, the Russians were anxious to finish off the resistance. On the other hand, the resistance was anxious to show that it's that it still survived and ha had the ability to do something. And uh, the result was a, uh, <clears throat> a terrorist attack which gave every sign of having been orchestrated by the Russian authorities themselves. However, the, the, that's a complicated situation uh, because that the Russians had in mind was not against the school, but rather against the parliament of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of North, North Ossetia. And uh, the outcome was not to be uh, a, mass, a massacre of the hostages, but rather a massacre of the terrorists. The problem was that when things went wrong and the terrorists changed, changed the venue of their attack, the Russian authorities had no compunction about slaughtering the hostages, even though they were uh, parents and children. Uh, and they behaved in a manner in which no civilized. We can compare them with what happened in, Ma in 1974 in Malat, uh, in Israel, in which the, the, the Israeli authorities were ready to release where, where Palestinian terrorists uh, uh, seized a school. And <coughs> the Israeli authorities uh, agreed to release the most horrific terrorists that they had in their custody in order to spare the children. Then things began. Then, then, Things went wrong for a series of reasons, but as far as we're talking now about the intentions of the two sides of Russians, Russians were concerned uh, to, to, to massacre the terrorists and, 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 and to establish the conditions for a 
Chechnya under their control, and if that meant killing the hostages, they didn't care. Just, just one point. This, this type of strategy, this false flag strategy, is something in my practice we ran across not only in Thailand, but in, in the CIA playbook. It was used by the CIA in the 70s uh, in Italy, where uh, there were a number of uh, Red Army factions that later turned out, including possibly the murder of Moro, to have been uh, commissioned by the Italian army. So these, this, this strategy of tension, the Russians did not invent, did not invent uh, but unfortunately, they've taken it to a, a whole new level. Well, they actually did invent it. We're the ones who learned from them. <laughs> I, I, there's one other point I'd, I'd like to make about, about these, these peripheral uh, wars. Uh, I think we, we know from the invasion of Afghanistan, the, 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 uh, the, the, that Soviet misstep and tragedy, you know, m many of the, there's almost nothing more sinister than denying to the, to, to families when a loved one has departed, denying access to the remains. We know that uh, from that time, many of the young conscripts who lost their lives in, in Afghanistan were buried in remote places with uh, anodyne uh, markings on their, on their headstones. And the same thing uh, has been, had been happening in Chechnya and is now happening again in the, in the Ukrainian conflict because they don't want to they do not want to have the kind of outpouring of grief publicly that it would be if these were public burials. And so this is part of a, of a sequence of denial of reality that is quite profound and, and, and quite sinister in what it does to the moral fiber of the country. It gets so that those Russian residents whom I've talked to over the years have the view that they don't believe anybody. There's no purpose in believing anybody anymore, any source of information, because they're all lying in some way. They're all deceiving in some way. They're all guilty of, of crimes against my ability to believe in anything. Therefore, I don't believe in anything. I'm going to withhold belief. Not, not faith and not some mystical saving, but in what's going on in my own country. I can't believe what I'm being told about it, and I don't want to believe it. In the aftermath of the shootdown of the of the of the Russian uh, fighter bomber in over Syria, it was in, you know that an enormous, astonishing uh, pictorial sequence of the plane uh, dying in flames. Enormously powerful visual. I talked to people thereafter. They believed first of all that the Americans had done it. Secondly, if the Americans had not done it, that, 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 they were, that NATO did it, which is the same thing, the same thing. And then there were people who didn't believe anything. They didn't believe, they just believed that a plane had gone down and it was probably a Russian pilots who died heroically or whatever. They didn't believe anything else that had to do with it because they were just said, I can't believe in any of this stuff, period. So you get to a, a kind of stopping point in terms of the social and the, the moral cohesion of a country where people have that kind of view. I think this brings up, if I may ask a question, then I'll get to you. D David talks about morality in his book. I mean, it's not fashionable, to say the least, for political scientists to talk about morality, especially in international affairs. So what's going on here, David? Why are, why are you talking so much about morality? What's the 
importance and do significance about, of do that. I try, I don't know. Do I talk about that? Uh, <laughs> well, the the you know it's actually um, a lot of political science is fact based, and in order to understand a country with a different psychology, uh, you have to understand really the frame of mind. Uh, in which uh, those facts are being produced. What happened, I mean, in, it, in Russia it actually was, was very explicit. Uh, the, the, the communist regime tried to reinterpret morality. Uh, in 1918, I believe, or 19, Lenin made his famous speech to the Komsomol in which he explained the principles of communist morality, which was anything that serves the purposes of the revolution is good, anything that interferes with the revolution is bad. And so therefore, it was not any sense of right and wrong that was supposed to, to guide people's actions, but rather whatever was in the interest of building communism, and who was building communism? Communist parties building communism. And who's in charge of communist party? Well, the leadership of the communist party. So in other words, anything that, the, that right is whatever the leadership considers to be right. And there's no uh, higher, higher standard to which, uh, against which their actions can be judged. That mentality has been preserved in Russia. Uh, because it was not renounced uh, after the fall of communism, and there was no there was no there was no reassertion of the moral standards that exist in the rest of the world, the system of universal morality, which is applicable not only to to citizens but also to leaders uh, and as a result, it was perfectly um, to, to actually there 's nothing wrong with bombing uh, of blowing up people when they sleep because it's in the interests of the state. Or opening fire on hostages with flamethrowers, that's perfectly okay uh, because that's also in the interests of the state. And to, I mean, the, the present Russian leadership are not great philosophers, but uh, to the extent that they're capable of thinking of anything, they, they have enunciated a kind of bastardized version of the communist ideology and the supremacy of state interests as their, as their guiding doctrine. So uh, what needed to happen after the fall of communism and which what didn't happen was the reorientation of the country according to universal moral principles. In fact, the basic ideas of communism uh, continued to hold sway, the idea that uh, that that what determines the moral legal climate of the country is the nature of the economic system. All you have to do is change the economic system and everything else will change. All you have to do is put in a superior economic system. So if you you put an end to socialism, create capitalism theoretically, you know, give property to every gangster, thief, uh bribe bribe taker and uh uh, and uh, undesirable that you can find, the result is going to be a flourishing law-based democracy. Well, it doesn't happen that way. And uh, so therefore, you, you know, the, 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 the core of the regime and the core of the mentality is in that inversion of morality. So you have to understand that. 
then you can understand everything else. Uh, quick comment, Bob, and then we'll go to... Because uh, I think there's a significant point that's being, uh, that's being made here and what you've raised as to what is the perp usefulness of the discussion and the issues that David is raising. And, you know, during the Cold War, there was, there was in, in the sup superficial way, but there was democracy and communism, and people understood that communism was totalitarianism, that it was an ideology that you had to oppose it. In the post-Cold War world, there is no understanding that there is another side with, with a different set of moral principles. Uh, and I think that's what David is raising, and it's very important. So people can get away with the idea of moral equivalence. Uh, and we can even get away with this, what I think has taken over in the West, the kind of postmodernism where there are no moral values whatsoever. Everything is relative. Um, and I think he's, he's making the point that there are moral principles. Those moral principles were violated in a fundamental way by a particular regime. And you need to know that there is something at issue here because Americans don't understand that anymore. And we have to start having that kind of a discussion. And I think David is starting that kind of a discussion. Bob, did you want to add something? The, the only thing I can say is that one of the best exemplars of this is Kadyrov's control in Chechnya. And what I compare it to is the United States deciding that we're just going to hand New York over to the five families. Because in reality, that's what Putin did. He made the literal deal with the devil and handed an, an incredibly central part of the country from a security standpoint to, to a mafia. It's incredible. Tanya Nybrook, uh, Magnitsky Act Initiative. Uh, David, uh, my congratulations to this book, and I know there's a lot of hard work behind it. I have a question probably. Uh, what can you say about Andrei Nekrasov? You know, I oh. know you, in, you had interaction <laughs> with him. What happened with him, and why he made this odd documentary about Magnitsky case? Thank you. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Andre Nekrasov and I made a documentary film together, so supposedly. I was asked, first book, first book I ever wrote, which is about the fall of the Soviet Union. And the problem was, and I even received a, a foundation grant to do it. And the problem was that I was not a filmmaker. I didn't know anything about making a movie. I, 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 I've watched movies. I never made one. But the, uh, I met Andre, who actually, the whole thing is just stars, you know, star-crossed. Uh, I met him here at Hudson when I first spoke about the apartment buildings. And he made a movie about the apartment buildings, which you can still find, by the way, on the internet. It's called Disbelief. And I have a big role in that movie. And then I thought, well, you know, he made a good movie. Why do maybe he can help me make this movie? And he disappeared ultimately with a large sum of the movie's money. <laughs> <laughs> Left me with about 150 hours of videotape. I had no idea what to do. I taught myself how to make a movie because I was a I was responsible for the money he had that he had stolen. And uh, finally, I got it done. But uh, Andre, uh, I was interviewed about him uh, by a, a Russian journal, a Russian site called Ezhenedelny Journal. And I said, I'll tell you what I told him. I said that you know, many people in Russia uh, have some principles, but they lack the moral strength to act according to those principles. And after all these years of 
of deprivation, material deprivation. And they're suddenly uh, uh, given unlimited opportunities to steal. Uh, many people simply could not resist the temptation. They were too weak morally uh, to, uh, to withstand the temptation. And, and Andre was ready to sell himself oil. Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time because he had sold himself to Berezovsky and Berezovsky was interested for, for, for purely accidental reasons. Nekrasov and I were on the same side. But as soon as somebody else offered him money to do just the opposite, for example, slander Magnitsky, uh, you know, he would be ready to do that. Or if, Luka, if, if Berezovsky got into his head that it was necessary to make a movie praising Lukashenko and he was going to pay for that, he would do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of cynicism you don't find uh, uh, every day. But it's surprisingly common, unfortunately, in Russia. We have a question in the second row here, please. Abe Shulsky from Hudson. Um, I'm very interested in something Mr. Close just said, which is that the result of this <coughs> propaganda, he suggested, isn't so much a belief in the propaganda, but rather a disbelief in everything. And that, imply, and that, in a way, is not so bad from the regime's point of view, because if the yeah. people don't believe your propaganda, well, that's not so good. But if they don't believe anything, they can't organize themselves to oppose you in any way. I mean, it, it makes the population inert if it's impossible for anybody to convince them of anything. They can't be organized. So I, I guess that raises the question, what, what do you foresee as the, the future uh, of all this in, in Russia now? Because, I mean, Putin had some real advantages when he came in. Uh, when he first came in, the price of oil was starting to rise, and it rose for seven, eight years, produced a lot of money. And secondly, the disorder of the 90s, at least as we understand it, or as I understand it, was was so great that even a modicum of order in the country seemed like a big advantage so that he, he could get a certain popularity out of just having stabilized things in a, in a certain way. But as those advantages disappear, I mean, the money disappears, the memory of the 90s as obviously grows weaker with time. What, what do you foresee as the, the result of all this? I'll just give a brief answer, but David, I think, could is a, have more profound things to say. What I can see, first of all, is that, um, as we already know, the best and the brightest are transportable in this global economy, and a lot have left. That's for sure. And uh, I think people, uh, they're waiting for something to happen, in effect, because nothing is happening in the way they would like it to happen. And I think that 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 sequence is in place and it's continuing and it's deepening. And it makes the possibility of, of getting to a rational uh, you know, outcome makes it almost harder to have happen. Uh, I can't predict anything, I'm not, that's not my business. Uh, what I do know is that the, the disaffection and the separation and the demoralization in effect that, that we can, that life can get better. We're seeing some of that in our own country. People have given up the notion that they can have a better life for themselves and their children. When that starts to hit, you get to very 
difficult places and the responsibility of the leaderships at whatever level has to be to pay attention to that and make things better so people's notion that things can be better can in fact have substance and not just slogan. Well, well it seems to me it's uh, all, all of you, if all of you want to answer this question, but I think that would be appropriate. Um, I'll, I'll just say that my, you know, in my experience, so uh, uh, many Russians actually have their doubts about the official propaganda, and they understand at some level that they're being manipulated, even if they go along with the manipulation. But they uh, they tell themselves that actually the situation isn't any different anywhere else. It's yeah, that that you know our government manipulates the the truth. Well, their government does the does the same, and actually. Uh, 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 what 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 we're doing is closer to what's right than 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 uh, what's done elsewhere. I knew someone, for example, who uh, was absolute uh, supporter of the Putin regime on one hand, and then on the other hand would turn around and say that she knew uh, and she or she had heard about uh, you know people who were working as Putin's assassins carrying out assassinations. She didn't see any particular conflict between Putin being a great guy and the fact that he was also or, you know, organizing the killings of people. Uh, and the, 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 if you were to ask her, she would probably say, "Well, well, that's isn't that the way it works?" You know? So that kind of it, it's uh, uh, the, the 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 brainwashing is is is. Uh, is sufficient, but it's also vulnerable. That means that with the right kind of counter-information, uh, a lot could change in Russia. But the, Abe, the, you have to remember that the target of that propaganda is not just the Russian people, it's the West. Um, and this is very systematic. Um, Peter Pomorantsev has written about this, calls it the weaponization of information. Um, and what they're doing is a very conscious policy. This is the Russian information policy today, which is different from during the Cold War, where they would have promote a propaganda line. Now it is to undermine the very notion of truth. Um, and that is having an effect. And that is why we can't get a consensus on what to do, why there is no foundation for thinking of what is true, what is not true. Well, nothing is true. And there is a constituency for that view here and in Europe. And it's very dangerous, and we have to think about a way. We have to analyze the Russian information policy. I mean, if we had a USIA, it could do that. Um, but others need to do that now. We have to know what it is, where it's going, what its impact is, and how to counter it. And I think the, the emphasis on public diplomacy doesn't do it, yes. We need to be a lot more scientific and we also have to address in our own society the silo effect. And, and, you know, I live a good chunk of my time in Europe, and people in Europe laugh at the United States in terms of uh, the way the media in this country reports politics. Fox and Friends on one side and MSNBC on the other. I mean, if you read Le Monde or The Times, you, you laugh at American political reportage. And... Uh, many are starting to tune into RT and saying, you know what, that's more coherent than Fox and Friends in terms of dealing with European issues. What's, what's frightening is that um, uh, 
people like me and others get invited onto RT now. They're, they're, they're really getting out in a very big way. And people, I'll tell you, people in the UK, for instance, are treating it as just any other normal channel. And when you challenge them, they throw fox in your face. And they say, you know, it's a free country. Everybody's allowed their views. And look, uh, you know, the American position, the, the hard right position on news is no different than Russia's. And, and those are arguments that have to be addressed. And, and we can't just make a lot of assumptions about that. David, do we have the last word from you? Um, okay, we can. I would just thank everyone for coming and hope that, uh, in fact, uh, you will take a look at the book and that its arguments uh, about Russian history will somehow uh, leave us better informed than we've been in the past. But anyway, thank you very much.